Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 555. A lot of you know five is my lucky number, so 555 is obviously going to be a big episode. So I'm delighted to have this episode to be joined by Peter Capaldi, a living legend, a national treasure, surely, surely. Yeah, I managed to jump on Zoom with Peter a couple of weeks ago to talk like around the release of his crime show, his his police show on uh, on Apple Criminal Record with Kush Jumbo and loads of just amazing people. It's really good. So we talk about that a bit, but we talk about everything. We talk a whole load just about Glasgow and how wonderful Glasgow is. We talk about music. We talk about his journey from youth to 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 iconic role after iconic role. He was lovely, so chatty and so giving. As I recorded this, I don't think I'd ever heard Peter Capaldi on a podcast, but now it's coming out. He has since done amazing episodes of Where There's a Will, There's a Wake, Kathy Burke's podcast, and obviously Off Menu one of the greatest podcasts of all time surely surely so check all of them out along with criminal record let's get into the episode we are brought to you as ever by speech recordscom that's where you can support the podcast and also look good patreon.com forward slash scrubius pip is where you can support the podcast and then it's on you if you look good or not that's not my problem it's not my responsibility if you want, you wanted my help with that, you needed to go to speechdevelopmentrecords.com. So deal with that yourself. And twitch.tv forward slash pip is where you can keep up to date with me in general and just hang out and chat and interact and engage and be part of a lovely, nice, friendly community. Speaking of nice, friendly community members, let's get on with episode 555 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the nice, the friendly... Peter Capaldi. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. And we're rolling. Are you rolling? Yeah, cool. Perfect. Well, I'm here today with Peter Capaldi. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. Lovely to be here. How's how's your week? How's your day? What's been going on? It's been very busy because um, we have this new show that's on Apple called Criminal Record, yeah. which we've been doing the publicity rounds for, which is yeah. uh, something that you have to do for your for your sins in this day and age. Yeah, but it's it's fun. You get to meet lots of nice people like yourself, but it's a lot of a lot of chat. Yeah, and we're getting near the end of it now, so. Well, that's always a good thing, right? It's always a good thing. So, my story's a little more honed now. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Are we getting prime Peter Capaldi? We're getting. <laughs> you got it all good to go. <laughs> no, well, it's quite good because because it's towards the end. You realise, well, you know, I can tell the truth now and have a chat. Yeah. yeah. Instead of just coming up with uh, charming little bon mots. Yeah. Well. well we almost met a few a few weeks back, but I got ill. I was meant to be attending the um, the Greenpeace end of year kind of a, oh yeah event yeah. thing, and you were going yeah, along yeah. to that, right? That's you've, why I was there. Yeah, yeah. You, you've worked with them a fair bit in the past. 
do, do you feel yeah. things like that are important when you've you've got a profile and you've got a position? Oh yeah, and particularly that. I mean, I'm you know uh, I have to say you know I'm a grandfather. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have a, a two and a half year old and an eight week old, you know, grandson. And it worries me about what state the world's going to be in for them. Yeah. You know, it's and it's a reality. I mean, it's, it's happening now. And I feel any of us who can help spread that message out there, I think that we should. I yeah. think it's really, really important. There's not much that I can do other than, I mean, the, the, the people there at Greenpeace do incredible things Absolutely. and are activists and really, you know, put themselves in legal danger and physical danger. And, uh, you know, when you're going up against big national, multinational companies, that's, you know, they don't take any prisoners. Yeah. You know, so that's, I, I was so admiring uh, of their courage and bravery and commitment. So it was lovely to meet some of the people who actually do the tough stuff. It's easy for me just to stand there, you know, yeah. and spout this stuff and to do a column in a paper or something like that. Yeah. But those people out there on the ground, that they're, they're doing amazing things. And it's amazing because they are, they're battling against these big corporations and these big companies, but they're also often battling against public opinion because we've got in a really weird place in society recently where often any form of protest gets a big backlash or disruption gets a big backlash. It's like, well, that's what we need to do to be getting attention, right? These things need to disrupt and to make people uncomfortable. Yeah, but it's all, you know, where we are at the moment is, sadly, I think we've been manipulated into a place where it's useful for people in power to keep us divided. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, all of this kind of, you know, woke stuff and culture war stuff is just nonsense. It's just a means of separating people. Yeah. You know, and uh, the fact that, you know, the government and and, and, the, and the newspapers that work for them spout all of this stuff, I think, is, is awful. And we should all kind of... Uh, point it out and, 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 and try and not listen to, you know, it's like, it's like you can't be a Brexiteer and, and, and care about the environment. Mm, yeah. You know, like someone's telling you, you can't do that. Yeah, here's your set of opinions that, that, that you have to stick to. You can only be this and you, or you can only be that. Yeah. And of course, it's just classic sort of divide and rule. Mm. You know, it's just making us all, we're put into these corners where we're, we're spouting our arguments and there's all these other things going on, all these terrible things going on and we're distracted by the fact that we're engaged in our culture war arguments. It's nonsense, yeah. you know, it's garbage. Yeah, and and, and it, it doesn't encourage open discussion and debate because no. it is, you're already on one side, so you're trying to win an argument rather than have a discussion yeah. and learn and see the nuance of a subject. It's just, no, I need to, I'm against them, they're my enemy Therefore, Absolutely, I've got to win. Absolutely, and in fact, you know, we have all have much more in common with each other. But I don't know how this happened. I don't know when this all occurred. You know, that, that, yeah. that suddenly we, we, we're so polarized from each yeah. other. And also, I often wonder whether we are really that polarized. Whether mm-hmm. people in the street, in the shops, or in the supermarket, and all that, I really get these. You know, around you don't see them on soapboxes screaming at each other. It's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance because I worry about being in in my own little bubble and thinking everyone is positive and good but then equally it's that exact same thing i'm like i'm sure people aren't as at odds as 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 they appear you know yeah yeah and also that the the fact is a lot of people 
that we hear from in in the media, politically, and all kinds of uh, areas, you've got to remember as well, they're very fond of the sound of their own voice. Yeah, yeah. That there is a narcissism yeah. in, in being a, a politician or being a public person with an opinion. Yeah. You know, it's social media has allowed everyone, the people, the people to have their opinion and to have it put out there. Yeah. But the return on that is that it's rather delicious to be in the spotlight. Yeah. And to have your opinions, no matter how weird they might be, listened to. Yeah. You know, in a, in a sense, that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's saying, here we are. This is what we feel about things. Yeah. And, and you guys can, can, can hear all this uh, in a way that wouldn't have been possible 10 years yeah. ago. But um, we shouldn't remove narcissism and egotism from our, our, our absorption of, of what people are saying, because that is going on. I often hear people spouting, spouting terrible opinions, uh, yeah. and I can see a glimmer in their eye at the delight at the attention. Yeah, at the attention that they're going to get. Well, yeah. I mean, we've got enough time in this chat to go all over the place. So while yeah. we're on politicians, I kind of wanted to ask how you feel at this point about M- Malcolm Tucker, because I think were one of the greatest characters in TV history. But I think a really weird thing has happened where there are now politicians who kind of idolise him. And correct me if I'm wrong, he's he was a, a bit of a fucker, right? You were playing him as, as as not a good person. So it's it must be strange for you that there are people who probably idolise and, you know, try and emulate this, this character that was meant to be a villain of sorts. Um, well, he wasn't, you know... <laughs> yes, he was. I, I never saw him as a villain. Yeah. I saw someone who was doing his job. His job was to um, sell the government's policies. Yeah. Now, you know, depending upon what those policies are, that's either being villainous or not. Yeah, of Uh, course. uh, So he just had to be very tough to get his job done. And he was working with a lot of very stupid people. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And he was actually very smart. I don't quite know what it is that the politicians get from him. Yeah. I don't know what it is that they think that, that's particular to them. I suppose he's he's smart and clever and he's always it was it was a rare program in that actually dealt with the, the boiler room of politics. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't the West Wing. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the grand policies being done and all that and the difficult moral decisions. It was the nuts and bolts. Yeah. You know, you've got to get out there on the Today program and sell this and, and this policy. And even if the policy collapses, you know, five minutes before you've got to go on the radio, you've still got to deliver it. And Malcolm was the guy that had to police all that yeah. and make sure that they had. I mean, I think it's interesting that I don't know what politics was like before, but clearly at that time, it was the beginning. And possibly it wasn't, that's what we mean about time, possibly it wasn't the beginning, but we, the, the public were beginning to see that uh, politicians' messages were calculated mm-hmm. uh, and designed uh, and there was a kind of a group of madmen, kind of Madison Avenue people, you know, figuring out what was the right thing to say. Yeah. What is the right thing to say? Never mind what you think. Never mind the essence of yourself that you're, the people in your constituency voted for. What is the, the, the thing that's going to keep the government's policy on track? And we're still suffering from that today yeah, with these e- endless kind of MPs, you know, sent out to sell things that possibly they, they, they don't really feel that they believe in. And you can see it in their eyes. Yeah. You know, you and you see can it. see with the constant kind of shuffling and reshuffling and moving and changing of things and how 
they're yeah. adamant on one thing one minute, then when they've moved over here, they're like, yeah, yeah. that was always wrong. Or, yeah. I mean, the, Brexit is the prime example that all the people that brought Brexit in all then instantly made all these promises and then left. Yeah, yeah. And said, Absolutely. yeah, well, cool. Yeah. Good luck with that, guys. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not anything yeah. to do with that. But I think just just to go back to Malcolm, from, you've, you've made me think that maybe what, they, what the politicians get from it is that they, it perhaps allows the public to see what they have to go through. I yeah. think maybe that's why politicians like it, because they think now the public can see that there's some monster on our backs yeah. who makes us say these things. Yeah. But that, is, that isn't a very good um, thing for politicians, really. Again, I wonder how many think of themselves as, as the intelligent one trying to rally all the idiots and how many accept that they're the idiots are being r- rallied. It must be a tough one to, <laughs> to accept and take in. I don't really know. It's very, I don't really know a lot of politicians. Those that I've met, I have, again, been the thing that struck me most was, again, a sense of ego mm. that is often hidden when they're yeah. uh, doing interviews. But there are, you know, really decent people there who are there for the right reasons, yeah. trying to do the right things. There are also, unfortunately, I believe now, a lot of people who shouldn't be there mm-hmm. and who are there for the wrong reasons. And I think it's a, a, it's a very deep problem that we have, you know, in, in, in the sense that, you know, we basically live in a, with a government who, a government that, you know, can look at something like COVID, which is the, probably the, the, the greatest post-war national threat and dilemma that we've ever had and see what profit can be made for themselves from that. And that is part of their DNA. And I think that's that's wrong. That's not what we should have in a government. And it's this whole thing of, you know, we have such respect in society for money and success, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean anything, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. because you've become a, a billionaire, because you've sold a certain product or, you you know, you've, you've invented a new photocopier or something, or, or you know, you've invented a, you know, you're a fantastic estate agent, doesn't make you, you know, that, that is not a measure of character. Yeah. But we've gotten into this position where we, th- where, where we think society and, and the government elevates people who just make a lot of money. That's yeah. all that they do. And so therefore, are, are they are they good people? Are they the people to be in charge? Just because they because they run a company, do they have therefore the requisite skills to mm-hmm. lead a nation? Particularly when there are threats that, that, that appear like COVID that are outside the, the the norm. Yeah, and COVID really exposed how messed up our payment systems are in general, because all of those doing the absolutely essential, crucial jobs are paid very little. And all of those who, when we all had to stop for a bit, no one really noticed that the bankers had to work from home for a while or or this or no. that. And all, all these jobs that are making all the huge amounts of money could yeah. take X amount of time off because yeah. it didn't make a, a markable difference. Whereas those who we needed, even m- months or years later, are having to st- strike to try and get a livable wage. Yeah, I mean, that's horrendous. It's upside down. I mean, it's an upside yeah. down society. I mean, we we, we saw in, in the lockdowns, you know, the people who made society run. Mm-hmm. And they were the people who drove the buses, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and picked up the rubbish yeah. uh, and nursed and cared for people. You know, these were the people who were holding, physically holding society together. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and risking themselves by going out into, I mean, you, you know, people forget, but, you know, COVID was not, we didn't know that that was a, a disease that was going to run and run and run. Yeah. And, and was going to, you know, society was going to crumble under its wake. And those people were there and kept going and held it all together. And, you know, I, 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 I often now feel embarrassed that I stood and applauded the NHS in a piece of kind of propaganda, really. Yeah, yeah. When... When it was all over, the government couldn't pay them. There's a there's a, a a guy called Rutger Bregman who's had two amazing books out that look at society a lot and have positivity in there. But one of the great examples he gives is in the in the 70s in New York, there was a bid men strike. Yeah, and it lasted about I think it was about two weeks because within two weeks there were rats everywhere. Yeah, the, the streets were a mess. So. They buckled and paid them what they deserve. Around yeah. the same time, there was a banker's strike in Ireland. The bankers were on strike for three months in the end and then just came back because people yeah. f- found their own ways to make it work. And it's, yeah, it's the prime example of what we actually need versus what we th- th- think is worthy of all the, all the money. Yeah, but it's also the kind of lack of leadership. Mm. There's no kind of, uh, that you can celebrate the nurses on the one hand, and then not just find the money to pay them. Yeah, yeah. It's a measure of the, of, of lack of leadership and of yeah. character. So I don't know, you know, all the, all the people who are leading us, I don't buy them. I don't believe them. I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't know why, why is Rishi Sunak the prime minister? What makes you go, I'm a billionaire, now I'll be the prime minister. Yeah. What's, what's the point of that? All that work. And it, so it can only be like power. Yeah. It's not like he needs any more suits or swimming pools or anything like that. He just wants that, that power. And what are you going to do with that? I don't see you making a fairer society or making things better for people. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is going to verge on a professional segue here, but speaking of leadership, <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about a, a criminal record and I want to talk about the making of it because being an actor myself, I feel the tone <laughs> is often set on set by number one, two, and three on, on the call sheet kind of thing, those mm-hmm. people at the top, but also the producers. And you were a, a producer on this and obviously at the top there. So how conscious were you to make sure that it's a nice set to come to, that the atmosphere is right and that everyone's having a good time, even though it's a very serious and heavy heavy subject and story? Well, I'm uh, very conscious of that, which really comes... Actually, I, I only really learned about that when I did Doctor Who. Funnily enough, because it was very clear when you played that role that you were responsible for the environment. You set the tone, right? For the working environment. Yeah. So, you know, I always like to have a nice time, but also to get on with the work. And I want people to feel welcome uh, and and enjoy themselves. But at the same time, we've only got X amount of hours, so we've got to get on with it. Um, But I want them, you know, I love being an actor. I feel very privileged to be an actor. And so I want people to feel happy about coming to work and and that it's a good place. And a Doctor Who, you, you are... You know, you are responsible not just for the the environment on the set, but also the um, because you're the the face of that brand, as it were. You have to carry that around with you and and, and make sure uh, that um, openness and pleasure is available to anybody who wants to meet Doctor Who. Yeah. So when we did Criminal Record, it's a little bit harder because my my wife is the is the the real executive producer of the yeah. show. Yeah. You know, so she's the one who 
there was nothing. And she created this with Paul Rotman and brought it to fruition and was there every day to, uh, to go through the, the highs and the lows. But we, she, she's very keen that people are fairly treated and, and feel welcome and warm. It's about who you work with, you know. Mm. I think nowadays there's much more of a, because we're now working with these, you know, big streamers like Apple or, or Netflix or, or Amazon, as opposed to like the, the, the older independents, they are more conscious of, of being sued, I think. So they, they, <laughs> they, now, they, now, yeah. give us, they now give us lectures in, in, in HR and how to behave and stuff like that, yeah. which I think is a good thing because I think it's just about people looking after each other. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah but it was hard when it, it was a tougher, the material uh, w- w- was harder, but, but at the same time, we wanted people to feel that they wanted to come to work and that it was a good place. So I think I think it was. Is is there a different sense of achievement at the end of the day when, as said, you know it's 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 a family affair. You, you, you your wife and you and everyone involved have brought this all to life. Because I visited a friend recently who's who's the lead in a a big Disney thing, but it's also his production company, and we were on set, kind of going. You've been on loads of amazing sets, but it hits slightly different when you know that this wouldn't exist if it wasn't for you and your wife and and things like that. Were there moments of of achievement like that on on this project? There should have been. Yeah, um, yeah. There's often not time, right? But actually, there wasn't the time, and the, we really didn't have quite enough money to make the show, mm. and so it was a constant kind of struggle. There was always something falling through. There was always a, 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 some solution that had to be found for an economic problem, and there was always a ticking clock because we only had X amount of days to do it, and we couldn't afford any more. We couldn't come back and do it yeah. again. If, if that worked, so if you like, the the pressure became the, uh, the 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 most common factor there. But at the end, I guess I mean now that it's on now, we're all well. It only came on the other week, and so we had no idea how it was going to go. We were just thrilled that we had delivered it and survived, and we'd actually made a show. And so then we took a little bit of time and said, "Well, it's nice. This wouldn't have wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been for." Elaine and Paul Rutman and myself and, and Kush, you know, sort of uh, yeah. putting it all together. So let's just take our time and enjoy it. Never mind what happens to it. Yeah. You know, never mind whether people like it or they don't like it. But then as it turned out, people liked it. So that was a, a, a lovely feeling. And rightfully so. I, I, As weird as it sounds, I liked it even more than I was expecting because I'm a, a big fan of your work. I'm a big f- fan of Kush's work. But equally, you know, the UK, particularly the BBC, one of the things we do best is crime dramas, but, but but that means there's a certain amount of crime drama fatigue. So I went in kind of ready for another crime drama and I was delighted at the kind of the development of the characters, the complexities of colleagues being on the same team, but not necessarily pulling in the same direction, but then yeah. essentially having the same overall like you wouldn't have joined the team if you didn't have this. So all, all of that kind of the complexity of those characters, rather than only the here's yeah. the crime that needs to be solved. It was uh, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. What, what was it that drew you and indeed your wife to this story and this project? Well, she had been interested in uh, confessions and why mm. people confess and then they why they retract yeah. that confession. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there are all kinds of different circumstances, but it is actually quite common, which I didn't realise that people will confess to something that they may or may not have done yeah. uh, and then later withdraw it. So she was just, just started 
from that, developing this idea with Paul Rotman, who's a wonderful writer who she worked with on Vera, because they both started Vera together. Wow, yeah. And they're both really smart, really uh, in touch people. And they wanted to do something that wasn't, if you like, with all due respect to that, that kind of Sunday night kind of ITV sort mm-hmm. of thing. They wanted to do something that, that, that was tougher. And so uh, Kush and I had talked about maybe doing something together. And uh, Elaine just suggested that this might be a good idea, this police drama thing. And and they spoke to us about it and, and it seemed great. And they were able to, you know, both Kush and I were able to contribute ideas about who we thought these characters were mm. from the start, which that never happened to me before. Right. So and, and also they were writing for us from the start. Yeah. We were the faces they saw yeah. uh, when they were imagining these characters. And I liked, I've always, you know, I love crime and crime movies and stuff like that, but I always... I was always a big fan of the London. London as a setting for crime dramas, I think, is a great place. Now, I always loved those movies like back in the 80s, like Long Good Friday. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and there was one of them, a great film called Mona Lisa. Yeah. Uh, also with Bob Hoskins Bob in Hoskins, it. Bob Hoskins, yeah, 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 yeah. And with Kathy Tyson, who I was delighted came to uh, agree to be in our show. Yes. Uh, to me, she was such, I mean, she's a wonderful, wonderful actress. But to me, she was a connection to all that. Those movies where they used London as a great background yeah. for, the, for this crime thing. So the idea of doing something in London like that, I liked. And also the idea that we could do this kind of contemporary thriller, but also with a kind of classical kind of sense to it. And by that, I mean a kind of film noirish kind of... I mean, Hegarty is really a kind of film noir character. Yeah. You know, he's actually, you know, he's really an older kind of character. He's a sort of... Um, I love James Elroy, the writer, calls film noir. Well, here's a, a definition of it, which is, you know, it's a genre of film which is defined by the phrase, we're all fucked, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's that, that that's that's a great kind of thing uh, for, for the Hegarty character. But also, if you're doing it in a slightly more ambitious drama, you, you want to spin that into a real person. Yeah. I was sort of interested in what was, how did this person, Hegarty's a kind of veiled character. You can't really see what's going on. You know yeah. something's going on, but he's he's learned to hide a lot of what's going on. So I was interested in what was really going on. How did he get there? How did you start? Where do you start? Where do you end up? And also that we wanted to do something where characters often in, in TV drama at the end of the season or the end of the episode, the characters revert to who they were at the start. Mm. You know, the, the events don't have a consequence on them. Yeah, yeah. But but we wanted to do something where the events did have a consequence and changed the characters as yeah. they moved along. And as it goes on, it deep, you know, we, we we dig into it deeper and we find out more about Hegarty and how he, how he got to where he is. Oh, I love that though, because those questions that you're asking of... of of who Hegarty is and what he's hiding in himself is what we're asking as the viewer. And, and again, because of, because of the kind of tradition of these stories, we will make certain assumptions and certain predictions as such, which it's then a joy as things unfold and you get, yeah, more ins and outs and, and background. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm I'm very complimented that you said that. I'm very pleased because that's, in a way, what we're trying to do, you know. And also, you know, no matter how contemporary and realistic you might make something in this genre, 
you've still got to have a SWAT team and a chase and a you know and a and a shootout, you know, because yeah. that's what people like. Yeah. Um, so all that still had to go on while at the same time we were trying to consider the the, the inner landscape of the characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, are we going to jump around a whole load in this um, in this yeah. conversation? I want to ask you. I swear, I'm not just just bouncing off the word landscape there. But are you a fan of art at all? Do, do you create yeah. art? Because a friend of mine, Rob, and a wonderful co- a, a comedian, used to work in a in an art supply shop in London, and he swears you used to come in and buy watercolor pencils and all sorts of other <laughs> wonderful stuff. So I yeah. figured this probably isn't something that comes up much. So I wanted to kind of ask what if you're into art and what art you you were into yeah. or if you create. Or was I just a, a weirdo who liked to buy yeah. art supplies? I love an art I love an art supply shop. They're an great shops, shop, aren't they? they? Great. The smell of them and all those goodies and all that stuff and those. Well, the amount of sketch- things I don't quite know what they are in there. That's what the, is that? They're the thing? bits that draw me in. I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I want one. <laughs> and all those rubbers. How can there be all those? those there's different <laughs> yeah. kinds of rubbers: soft ones, hard ones. There's yeah. green ones. There's grey ones. No, I went to art school, so yeah. that that's my my background is drawing and, and painting and all that stuff. So I I draw. Yeah, I don't do it as much as I. Uh, I should, uh, but I do keep it up. I like it. I like it. Well, I mean, speaking of art school, that was that in in Glasgow. In Glasgow, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can we talk a bit about uh, Glasgow? I've I've been there the first half of of this week, and yeah, it's a wonderful city. I was there yesterday. I just came back yesterday, so we I were came there at back the, same the day time. before. Yeah, we were there. Oh, at the, oh. uh, so what were you doing at the same there? time? Um, I doing? was. Doing some some scouting for a short film. Um, right. I'm, I'm hopefully sh- shooting up there. I'm not Fabulous. sure if it's a short or a feature yet. It's at that development okay. stage where I'm like, this might have more legs to it than I yeah, originally yeah. thought. But yeah, yeah. I think it's the thing I love about the city because I used to do before I moved into acting and writing and stuff. I was in music and we toured. Yeah, a lot. yeah. yeah. Glasgow was always just one of our favourite places to go to because it seems to change so much but somehow stay the same. Like yeah. the, the, the the essence of it has never changed. Each time I go, it feels like there's new things and it's evolved yeah. and developed. But Yeah, it's an amazing place. I mean, I love it, really. Uh, and uh, I'm always interested. I read one of the numerous books about the Beatles and they're being interviewed and they're saying, what was your best gig? And they go, Glasgow. Yeah. You know, and people are always, I mean, you'll know because you've played there, but people are always saying how, how, how exciting the gigs they How loud. How loud. I remember walking out on stage yeah. in Glasgow and being genuinely hit by yeah. how loud that initial reaction yeah. was, kind of, yeah. yeah. And in fact, in straight, I met Alice Cooper and he said, and I was really thrilled to meet Alice Cooper. Amazing. I, I get my picture taken with him and all that stuff. He said, where are you from? And I said, Glasgow. And he said, we did a gig in Glasgow. <laughs> and he knew exactly, he said, Green's Playhouse, which was, is no longer there, which yeah. is a, a, the old venue uh, where, where the big band used to play. And he said it was in... December 1973 or something, whatever. Uh, and he said, he walked on stage and he said, the noise was incredible. And he said, we played the gig. And he said, these are my people. He said, this is like Detroit, mm. he said. And the great thing was I was able to phone up my pal who'd been at the gig and say, I've just met Alice Cooper. And he thought, you said you were a great audience. You know? <laughs> yes, that's amazing. Yeah. So how, how, yeah, how was it it growing up there? And what kind of kid were you? You said you, said you went to art school. Was yeah. Were the arts always the goal? Was acting the goal? Were other arts the goal? Was music involved? What What were you? Yeah, all of that. All of that. I was, uh, 
I was brought up in a tenement in Glasgow, which was wonderful, which wasn't a kind of horrendous kind of uh, deprived uh, upbringing. I had family all over the place. Uh, my my granny, my, my 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 father's mother lived downstairs. My mother's mother, my other granny lived across the road. Beautiful. All my uncles lived in you know flats down there, flats down there, or on the other side. So that all of the family was there. I, I guess it was fairly basic, but but you know we 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 were very well brought up. We were never hungry or anything like that. Uh, every time I say tenement in Glasgow, I, I know some, some people get an idea that you're in this uh, uh, kind of hell's kitchen kind of thing, but it wasn't. It was gorgeous. And then when I was about uh, seven, we moved out to the suburbs because people did because they were demolishing all the tenements. Um, as a kid, I was very. I could always draw. Mm-hmm. So, and I remember, and I, I, I've told this a few times now because some only came back to me recently. I used to, uh, this was before Top of the Pops, uh, there was a program called Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah. Which was uh, from Granada, I think. Uh, and, and I used to see that. I would have been about, I think, five or six. It was one of those shows you could see the cameras and the and the and the bands would be playing and, and it was obviously that was a Vogue which Top of the Pops carried on and stuff yeah. like that. And I had I got a wee shoe box and I drew a studio. I took the front off it and I drew a wee studio and I made a wee stage and I made wee Beatles. I drew little Beatles and got stuck them on the stage I and cameras it. and stuff like that. So I was obviously interested in uh, somehow in being part of this thing that I was seeing yeah. on television, but I didn't really know what bit of it. I would want to be a part of. And yeah. also, we I didn't come from a background where there was anybody who was an actor or anything like that. We didn't really know anybody in, in that world. Although my uncle, who I had, uh, who I was named after, uh, who was called Peter Capaldi, he, like all of my, like my father and my, and my other uncles, they were all ice cream men. Mm-hmm. But he had been a crooner during the war in, <clears throat> in Ensa. And, you know, it. and had... And been singing in in, uh, in 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 the ruins of Berlin and all that stuff, and done wow. some work. And he did some work at the BBC. He came back. And he did some singing on the BBC. And I remember he had uh, they gave him some gramophone records, which were recordings of his appearances on the BBC. And they said uh, they, the guy who introduced him said, "He's an ice cream man from Glasgow. Stop him and try one." He said. <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, and Peter Capaldi, and he got the mispronunciation mispronunciation of the name right in there from the start. Yeah, he said Capaldi, which luckily uh, Lewis Capaldi makes everybody say Capaldi now, which is good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, was, I was going to ask how you've you've enjoyed sh- now sharing the responsibility of bringing praise and and love and understand and correct pronunciation to the Capaldi name. How's that been? And since Lewis has, has blown up and got so fun. adored as well, obviously oh, yeah. respected for his music, but yeah. more than anything, fucking adored as a person, and that's yeah. one of the beautiful no. things. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I think he's wonderful. You know, I yeah. think he's just fabulous. But I didn't know. You know, he's not. You know, I'm his second cousin, which yeah. means that that his his grandpa is my cousin. Yeah, yeah, you know his grandpa's, you know, called Johnny Capaldi. That sounds like somebody from the mafia, right? Yeah, Johnny Capaldi. <laughs> Although my family had great names. I had an uncle Gus Augustino Capaldi. I mean, oh, that's wow, wow that's fantastic name is that? But Johnny Capaldi is uh, is Lewis's my cousin and Lewis's granddad. Yeah, I think so. I never really knew Lewis when he was a kid or anything, but I just I found him sort of on on, on YouTube and look, I saw this video of 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 him singing, and I thought, wow, he's amazing. And I, I got in touch with him and. Said, I think we're related. Can I think you're amazing? Can I come and see one of your gigs? This was, you know, some years ago. Yeah. Uh, 
And I went to see, I think, someone at King's Cross, uh, and it was packed. It was a small venue, but it was absolutely packed. Yeah. But all the all the all the kids, they all sang all of his songs, they all knew all of his words. Yeah. They came on stage, already adored. And his banter with the audience was so great. Mm. And then he sang, and it was so beautiful. They were so moving, these songs. And I was standing, I was like really proud, like it's nothing to do with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was quite, you know, I'm related to this. <laughs> and then uh, and then he asked me to be in the video for uh, Someone You Loved. And uh, I was delighted because that, that was great fun. So I went off and shot the, the video uh, with him for that. And I just think he's brilliant. I think he's, and yes, he's very courageous and, 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 and brave to, to be frank about what he's going through. Yeah. But course. also, I don't want to work it. This, this talent is amazing. You know, these songs are, because they come from, I don't, how do you get that, that kind of uh, sensitivity and uh, uh, all that heartache going on when you're only in your early 20s? Yeah. And I, again, I genuinely think there's something. Like my favourite thing is film and TV. I love the the cinema. I love TV, but yeah. I think there's something unparalleled to being in a crowd all s- singing a song together. I think yeah. there's something that you just can't. I can't explain that yeah. feeling of of hearing everyone. So I can yeah. only imagine that the first the first time you go along and yeah. have this kind of. We've not really met, but I'm related to you. And then there's this room of people that it means so much to. Yeah, it's amazing. But I know I agree with you. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing that when people, it's a kind of communal expression of love or, or sadness. I mean, yeah. music is just so, it's it, it's in touch with these kind of elemental elements of ourselves that and, and, and that, that, that can't be articulated yeah. with words. You know, it needs, I often think, I've been thinking, recently, what is it that, when you hear these songs, what is it that gets you first? Is it the words or the sound is it the yeah. act? Is it the actual? I mean, you'll have more experience than, than than I have in that area in making music. Is it the sound of the thing? I've no. Again, is I, I I genuinely think there's just some kind of m- magic in there. I definitely yeah. have had stuff where I've made songs that I thought I don't know if people are going to connect with this and then they do there's something there that you can't figure out until it's in front of that crowd until it's in front of those people and yeah yeah, you see what connects yeah it's and and as you say it's very moving i mean i get very i get very teary all kind of sort of uh oh 100 yeah anything really uh but 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 at communal expressions uh uh, of deep emotion i'm exactly the same i was driving home at one point and there was a bon jovi concert on the radio and i'm not particularly (laughs) into bon jovi but then the crowd started singing along to living on a prayer and i was welling up and i was like this song doesn't even mean anything to me yet just hearing everyone that it means something to yeah just, just cuts through yeah no i remember seeing you know when it first opened um the stage show of The Lion King. Yeah, yeah. And whatever you might think of that musical or whatever, the music and that, uh, the actual delivery mm. of that story on stage through puppetry and acrobatics uh, and through human beings morphing themselves into animals and, and, and singing songs that the audience all know I was kind of reduced to tears by it, just by the yeah. opening of it, you know, by seeing the, this wonders that human beings could make, this good thing, this this great stuff that human beings could make instead of all the crappy stuff that, yeah. you know, is around us, to see how how wonderful we can be, you know? Yeah. I think maybe that's part of it, I've decided. I think it definitely is. And, and speaking on that and then you speaking of growing up in a tenement and all the family around you, 
as I was walking around Glasgow, kind of location scouting and just having ideas, I walked over that that tunnelled bridge that's over one of the motorways. And all along mm. it, it says, people make Glasgow. And mm. I think it sums it up perfectly. It's why mm. every time I go back, it's changed so much, but still feels the same. It is the people, yeah. and it is the community. So regardless of if you're growing up in a nice area or a rougher like financial yeah. area, it's yeah. still, it's the people that make it, you know, yeah. a beautiful thing. But it's not, you know, exclusive to Glasgow because I recognise it a lot and I, mean, I recognise it in London and I yeah, recognise yeah. it in yeah. Liverpool and in, in Manchester and Newcastle. I can yeah. see this kind of... Uh, it's almost like in the in, uh, in a lot of these big industrial towns yeah, uh, yeah. that have had a, a, a very big working-class population. There's a rapacious kind of appetite for the arts, yeah. which is... Uh, uh, it's like you will not stop people in those cities from being creative. Yeah. You know, despite the lack of funding and the lack of interest. Yeah. And yeah. the suggestion that everybody should do, should, should get their mathematics all level and stuff like that. Yeah. Which I would never, you know, I failed to do completely. And, uh, but subsequently paid huge amounts of tax to the government uh, and made a lot of programs that still brought lots of money in, despite yeah. not, not being able to do mathematics. Um, you know, I, I, and I love that. And I don't know what it is. It's something, and also it's, Iron and rust and rain and cold. I mean, it was freezing, right? Yesterday it was, was so cold. <laughs> yeah, because I left so to get cold. I left to get the train yesterday morning, and I walked and I was walking along Ingram Street in the centre of Glasgow, and it was all icy. That it somebody had been washing the windows already at that time in the morning, but of course, that all the the suds had turned to ice. Yeah, and it was a death trap. I thought, oh, I love I love this city, you know. But I love yeah. London as well, you know. It's like. You know, I've spent my life in both of these places. Or, or what made you move m- move to, to London? What drew you? Was it work? Was it? It was. It was work. Yeah, yeah because uh, I was about uh, twenty four, and it, mm-hmm. and it was clear that there were more opportunities for uh, uh, in, in acting. So so I came here and, and, and tried my hand. Just to to finish that, making the wee studio and all that stuff. I didn't really know what I wanted to be, but I wanted to be part of. I, I create. I, as a kid, I couldn't articulate what any any of that was, but as I got older, as, and, and music started, you know, and we started to hear, you know, Mark Bourne and Bowie and and, and, and Zeppelin and all that. When obviously the Beatles and all that before that, and then Sex Pistols came along and all that stuff. So there was all stuff out there. Yeah. That I wanted to be a part. But then I'd also watch TV and I'd see, you know, John Hart or Monty Python or Doctor Who. And I thought, this I want to be part of all that. But I didn't know yeah. how to be part of it. I didn't know what role I would play. I just wanted to be part of it. And it just occurred to me that acting might be the route to get to take, to get into that. So that's why I began to focus on that. But then I couldn't, I, I got rejected from drama school. I auditioned, but I never got in. Oh, but really? Because I yeah, but because I could draw, my art teacher said, "Well, go to art school. So I think that's what you should do." And that was the that was the right advice because that's a better place for me. I think. Yeah, yeah. As much like we mentioned earlier, and I strongly agree that there's a lot of problems with podcasts when it comes to the spreading of maybe uninformed opinions and so on and so forth. But one of the things I think is great and important about them is that they're free and that they can give insight. So again, I've grown up in a working cl- a, a class area and I was in music for years before I moved into acting and TV and that because exactly the same. I just kind of di- didn't know what there was there or how you get there or what mm. how this all yeah. comes together. So yeah. the fact that these conversations can happen and you can 
learn about full productions. You can learn about you, that you could be getting into film and TV as as a carpenter or, yeah. or, or as an electrician or as a sound man or as a cameraman or as a writer, mm-hmm. producer, all of these different things. It's kind of, it definitely opens up because certainly for a long time, all you're seeing is what you see on the screen and you've mm-hmm. no idea how all that came, how, how the village that had to yeah. come together to make that a thing and what your role could be in that village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, it's really, I mean, I, I remember seeing a script for the first time I've never seen a script. And this is actually, I know this goes back to one of my weird connections with Doctor Who. I used to write, I love Doctor Who, and I would write letters to the to the Doctor Who production office and say, what's happening next? And I received, and this would never happen now, but I received in the post a package, and I opened it up, and it contained two scripts of Doctor Who. Oh, wow. Of the new series that hadn't been out yet. But the producer had obviously seen something in whatever I'd put in my letter, that he thought, I'll encourage this kit. I think he did that with a lot of children. Yeah, and people yeah. did that People did that at the BBC. People don't realise this, but there, there was people who, who kind of recognised that they had a kind of responsibility to help and to mm-hmm. reach out. I've never seen it, and this was a script, and there was camera directions, and it was where the camera stood, and the actor, what the actor said, and it was like sixty pages long or whatever. It was amazing, and the irony was, years later, I got to meet his name was Barry Letts. I got to meet him in person. Oh wow! Because, because by accident, by some mysterious kind of coincidence, I became friends with his son. I never realized we never realized oh, wow. that was his. So I got to meet the man that sent me the scripts. And thank him in person, which was that's lovely. amazing. So, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a pretty quick and easy question. How easy a decision was that then to take the role of 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 Doctor Who? Because again, it was one of the mad, one of the most brilliant transitions to go from from Malcolm Tucker to Doctor Who. Kind of how how was that? Well, it was more complicated uh, than you would think because uh, really you had to consider. I mean, I was very happy with where I was in terms of my profile, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and having spoken to uh, David Tennant and Matt Smith, who are always great uh, friends and, and always very, I could always go to them for advice. But I spoke to them before I, I took it all on. And uh, David said, you know, your 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 profile, your, your visibility will change. You will yeah. be very, people will know who you are. Uh, so you had to consider whether or not that was something you want you could live with. And also because it's not just me, it's my family. You know, if you've got paparazzi outside your house, that's a, you know, that had never happened to us before. So that was a whole different ball game. And that was slightly kind of uh, weird and kind of uh, anxiety making. Mm -hmm. But that was also going on with this sort of basic kind of sense that, you know, my mother, you know, when I was in that wee tenement, I'd be watching Doctor Who on this little, you know, black and white television screen in the corner. And I loved it. And my mother would go out and go around the shops at Christmas time and get me a Doctor Who annual. And so it was kind of part of my childhood, a very sort of deep part of my childhood, along with the Beatles and all of that stuff in my wee studio that I made. You know, it was all part of my childhood. So obviously, very powerfully, I I felt that I had to do it because it would be... Uh, a, a, an insult to fate and to yeah. the gods of of show business or whatever it is that's that's out there who said here's the who you, you got the scripts when you were 
you know, 11, here's the show now. Yeah. So, yes, I did want to do it, but I also had to consider the effect on my family and my life. Uh, and we all agreed that I should do it. Yeah, I love it. We, I, I mean, we're going to r- r- run out of time, shortly. Okay. So I'm going to start to wrap things up. But I want to okay. quickly ask how different it was shooting a huge American production like Suicide Squad yeah. with James Gunn and the amazing people over at DC. How was that compared to so much of the British film and TV and that kind of thing? Well, it was very different because the scale yeah. was, was huge. The actual, what they can afford is, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I always remember we, my first three days were spent on, in the rain in this, uh, under this rain machine. That was uh, wow. uh, to provide one of these shots of the whole Suicide Squad walking towards us in the rain. And the rain machine was not like, you know, I'd be used to like on Doctor Who, something with a hose, someone, or, you, know, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, spraying kind of water around there. This thing was like a piece, it was it was like a, 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 a structure, it was like a bit of the fourth road bridge. Right, yeah. Pipes and wires and all that, and it was suspended about, yeah. you know, 300 feet above us, and they could control... The, the water and the and the uh, the density of the water, and it was so far above us that when they switched it on, you could watch it would take about you know it felt like thirty seconds for the for the rain to get from there to yeah. to by the time it hit you. And of course, the extraordinary thing was watching this cast who because like Margot Robbie was was leading it, and we were talking about you know you know uh, the, the atmosphere on set and stuff, like and Margot was was soaked to the skin for three days you know, as all of the actors were. And there was not a complaint. Yeah. There was not, nobody moaned. Everybody was cheerful. I mean, they're all getting paid a lot of money, uh, myself included. Uh, that really kind of had an effect on me. I thought, this is, these are real pros here. Yeah. You yeah. know, they're, 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 they're making this very uncomfortable situation a happy one for everybody. You know, nobody was running about going, oh, I'm freezing, I'm freezing, I'm freezing. Can you get me a sausage roll? Or, you know, I can't do this game. I can't, you know. They were all just like, this is what we're paid for. Let's do it, you know, and have a good time. I love the idea of Margot Robbie or John Cena asking for a sausage roll for some reason. It just seems... <laughs> it seems Run like out to Greg. Well, I always remember when we did... Can you uh, get me a steak, did, mate? <laughs> now, we did... Uh, I did a film called In The Loop, uh, which was yeah. a kind of film version of uh, yep. uh, In The Thick Of It. And we, uh, it was great because we worked with James Gandolfini. Gandolfini, yeah. Who Amazing, I was, you know, and I, you know, so uh, I love The Sopranos. I love James Gandolfini. So I was just a total... I could barely work with him, you know, because I, I, he was. I, I would just look at him all the time. I couldn't act with him because I loved him so much. But we filmed a lot of it, a lot of the American bits in the UK, and we filmed some of it that was set in the State Department was in Hornsey Town Hall in Crouch right. End. Yeah. And I was desperate to get James to come out and go to Greg's with me. I thought that would be so cool. <laughs> it would have been amazing. To walk into Greg's with Tony Soprano and get a couple of vegan sausage rolls. But he, he never came out. Imagine being in Greg's and Tony Soprano and, and Doctor Who walk up and order some vegan great. sausage rolls. Yeah. It'd blow your mind. Well, I always wanted to get, I noticed some of the former, you know, Matt Smith has a kind of, uh, he's got a, a relationship with Paul Smith and he does the, the Paul Smith latest collection and all that yeah. stuff. And uh, you'll see, you know, Pierce Brosnan with a big watch and all that. And that's it. That's his, obviously the, I always wanted to have a, a commercial relationship with Greg's. I thought it'd be very good if Doctor Who could come out of the TARDIS with a sausage roll. <laughs> That'd be so good. 
<laughs> I, I, I love the idea of it. Well, again, before we wrap things up, I'm going to squeeze one more thing briefly in because another thing you did recently that I absolutely adored was the Devil's Devil's Hour on Prime mm-hmm. a couple of years back with, with Jessica Ray, Nikesh Patel, yeah. and the now Emmy-nominated Phil Dunster. Yeah. And there's more of that to come, right? Am I, am I yeah, we've done, correcting this? We've, we've filmed season two, which yeah. has not gone out yet, and we're just about to start filming season three, which is the last... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so that's extraordinary. It's, uh, How was that uh, to work on? Because it's, it's f- from what I can could think, it's kind of the closest you've got to kind of a horror kind of yeah realm. Um, it was great. I mean, it was it was a little bit odd because my character really just is sitting in a in a in a police interrogation room. Yeah, of so, so yeah. I find I find myself slightly kind of cut off from the rest of the actors because they yeah. were all off doing it all, and all of my because I sort of tell the story and yeah, hold the yeah, secrets. You're talking about it all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I just I, I did all of my stuff in two weeks sat in that interrogation room. Oh, wow. So that that was weird, but then I, it was delightful when it came on and people. Liked it so much. So, and, and what is delightful is now I've got. I know what happens at the end, right at the very end, because yeah. I've just got the. I've just got the the third season. Yeah. So, um, I hope people like. See, I don't know when season two comes on, but I hope they like it. But season three is definitely going to come along too shortly. I love it. Well, I I kind of always end by asking what's ahead, but I want to kind of get specific on this with you as well, because often you can't talk about what's ahead, but yeah. A lot of people don't know this, but you're an Oscar-winning writer and director, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, the first short you directed was it? It won an Oscar. Are, 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 is there any temptation or plans to write and direct in in the future, or or did that not grab you? I'm not really. I mean, I did it. You know, I had. A, I was absolutely astounded to find that there were even were Oscars for short films. I did a short film because I was because I built a wee studio when I was in yeah. my shoebox, you know. So that was yeah. just a further extension of that and my interest in that. And then I did, I had some adventures in America that went wrong, you know, and found the, 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 the pressure of being a director was was quite crushing, mm-hmm. you know. And I thought, I'm not really sure whether this whether I can stick with this. Although I have directed quite a few, th- you know, subsequently I directed, you know, uh, a movie and did some stuff for BBC4 and did yeah. a, a, sh- a show called Getting On with Joe Brand, which was yeah. a, a kind of an NHS kind of a comedy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I did that. And then I just did a pilot for for Sky, which uh, is not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> but so I still do, I still do odds and ends, but it's the, it's the time, you know, it's the, mm. I mean, I get kind of, you know, obviously, if we, did, we were doing Criminal Record and it was on such a scale and I would see the directors were all great and I could see them working with all this stuff and watching them edit and all that and I'd get a little bit sort of think, oh, it would be quite nice to do all that. Yeah. But to be honest, I'm very happy being an actor, you know. Yeah. I, I, I think it's good, for an act, it's good for an actor to direct so they can understand the yeah. pressures that other people are, are, are under and what, other people, what the directors have to deal with. Uh, and so that you can be, when you're an actor, part of the solution and not part of the, the mm-hmm. problem, yeah, you know. Yeah. And maybe one day, it's it's getting the, the right thing. So I, I, for years, I thought I'll never do that again. But recently, I've been going, mm, mm, might. But as you know, because you, you you know, it's a tough road. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the times, you know, the door slams in your face and uh, you have to kind of carry that. Keep the keep the keep the dream alive, mate. The the, the reason I was in Glasgow was to remotivate myself because of a year yeah. of doors slamming in my face on another yeah. project. Says I'm yeah. right. I need to just yeah. get, get out there myself and make something. Yeah. So yeah, completely yeah. understand that. Yes. So you know what it's like. So I think 
unless you've got a project, unless I had a project that was burning in my yeah. soul, yeah, and yeah. I really wanted to, because also I realized I didn't want to become, and, and this was no disrespect, but I didn't want to become a jobbing director. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be somebody who just did work that, to pay the rent. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, I, I only wanted to do my stuff, but of course... You know, not everybody wants to finance my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not always as simple as that, is it? Well, yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time, mate. It's been an absolute pl- pleasure and I'm excited f- f- for whatever's ahead. Thank you, Andrew Pip. Thank you very much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. It's been great. And the best of luck with all of your projects. I hope they all happen, you know. The stars will align one day. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Peter Capaldi. As I said, I truly recommend Peter on Kathy Burke's podcast and on James and Ed's podcasts. I'll be back next week. You know this. I always am. I'm. Uh, you've so far failed to get rid of me. I'm here every week. We're coming on for 10 years now. But yeah. All right. I'll go. I'll go. But as long as you promise to stay safe and stay sane, ta-ta.